Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Struggle Session. I'm Leslie III. And I'm Jack Allison. And today we have a very uh, special guest. We're going to be talking about their new book, a uh, very interesting uh, nonfiction book. It's called Blood Red Lines, How mm-hmm. Nativism Fuels the Right. It's going to be out January 19th from Haymarket Books. Uh, our guest today Brendan O'Connor, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. My book is about looking at the far right and the ongoing and cascading crises of capitalism, specifically through the lens of immigration and movements around nativism and attempts to restrict uh, immigration to the United States. It's a pretty US-centric book, um, but many of the phenomenon that I am reporting on, phenomena I'm reporting on and analyzing are manifesting in different ways in other countries, um, but my focus is on the US. Um, and it is also about kind of the struggle between different factions of the ruling class, those that are more aligned with industries that rely on migrant labor and then some industries that (laughs) rely on on deporting migrant labor Um, Mm -hmm. and the contradictions there and the contradictions between capitalists and folks that are more interested in in doing racist stuff (laughs) (laughs) does where does sort of capitalism end and just you know racism begin and where Mm. and are the two kind of one in the same do they both serve each other you know so that's a tension that the book really tries to explore and tease out one of the things that really became clear to me over the course of my research and reporting in this area has been the dynamic that it seems to me has been sort of the the paradigm when it comes to migrant labor and the enforcement of immigration law over the course of the past half century or so, mm-hmm. which is to say that having a, a, a strain of anti-immigrant nativist politics serves the interests of the capitalist class insofar as it facilitates the creation of a hyper-exploitable, undocumented underclass, um, a layer of the American working class that is even less able to avail itself of the already limited rights that, um, that workers in this country have. And so in order to do that, however, the, um, Sentiments around around nationalism, around nativism, around the construction and defense of whiteness um, need to be mobilized in a way that I think what you know we are seeing now is it's taking on a a life of its own <laughs> essentially mm-hmm. um, that it that that those forces have their own their own set of interests and their own kind of material incentives um, that are not necessarily always aligned with 
parts of the ruling class that ushered them into being in the first place. I did find the book very interesting, but when I was reading it, I couldn't help but think to myself, most of these problems were solved already when uh, Joe Biden uh, won <laughs> the presidency. Um, right. Trump's, Trump's out, so white nationalism is over. Yeah. So sorry that uh, it's unfortunate your book's going to come out one. There's going to be kind of one day of relevance before yeah. Joe Biden gets inaugurated, uh, unfortunately. You know, I bet big and I lost and... <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's the way that wow, it goes. You bet. That's what happens when you bet big on racism. Uh, <laughs> unfortunate. The point is that Leslie's making him, of course. But you know, as you go into the book, of course, it's like you know the last like. You know, this is bipartisan. If you look across like the last like I think it was all the way back to Clinton, it's like how many millions of people have been deported? It has been like completely like hyperinflated. I it feels like since the nineties. Yeah, the legislation that Democrats ushered through the in the crime bills of the mid 90s not only expanded the uh not only expanded domestic policing but also expanded the immigration enforcement mechanisms that that the Bush administration continued to build up the Obama administration continued to build up and that then the Trump administration inherited the incoming Joe Biden administration has made it very clear that they will continue to prioritize enforcement of the border and continue mm -hmm. to continue to deport people, continue to maintain these ways of managing migrant labor in a really brutal way. But what they will try to do is return it to the pre-Trump status quo where it was just hidden away. And it right. was... The outside. child prisons aren't going anywhere, but we're not going to be like specifically trying to separate families with policy. Right. Like, I think that's the idea is that it's like if family if people arrive on a company, but we're still going to arrest people and deport them and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think also I think some of what the Trump administration introduced into the discourse and and not just discursively, but materially is kind of the, the spectacle of the brutality that these, you know, that the Trump administration specialized in that, like, that is a, a, a new thing and has its own logic to it. For me, it's helpful to kind of think about the, an analogy to the Obama administration's embrace of drone warfare, where they're still killing people, but doing it in a way that is uh, <laughs> kind of hidden behind computers. Um, and the and Joe Biden has has specifically pushed for, you know, the expansion of not a wall, but a smart wall, and the expansion of surveillance technology on the border that has the same has the same end result of pushing people who are making the crossing from the Mex from Mexico into the US out into the desert which essentially has become a mass grave mm. but doing so in a way that involves greater plausible deniability for the administration right um so that's going to keep happening and workers who try to stick up for themselves on the job who are undocumented will always have the threat of deportation hanging over their head. Um, you know, these kinds of more mundane uh, forms of violence will, will continue um, unless something really radical changes. 
Yeah, you mentioned in the last chapter uh, that in the New York Times, uh, Thomas Friedman, who is considered like a liberal and very anti-Trump, uh, said that the solution uh, to the immigration crisis uh, is a high wall with a big gate, but a smart gate. Uh, so it's instead of build the wall, it's build the wall and the smart gate into the wall. <laughs> and that is going to be less racist. Yeah, and I mean, I think this kind of gives the game away um, on, as you were saying, Jack, that this is really a bipartisan project with slightly different versions of, or slightly different ideas about how to carry this out. But this is about regulating the entry and exit of labor and determining who is eligible to come into this country according to metrics that if I recall correctly, like Freeman in that, in that piece is talking about like IQ (laughs) and like all of this stuff that's like, dude, like this is, this is just as eugenicist (laughs) as uh, the more vulgar expressions that we get from Trump. And even of course, if you want to get back to, you know, and I think you touched on it even in the beginning of your book, it's like, what the start of this country was, was eradicating indigenous people. Yeah. And so we've kind of like come in, eradicated all the indigenous people and then like ad- erected walls and said, like, stay out. You know what I mean? It's like, we, you know, we've and, and subsequently also, you know, as everybody knows, we've like caused a lot of uh, uh, the, you know, terror that uh, uh, has led to the mass migrations and everything, you know, that uh, that is that are even causing people to uh, need to come up to this particular latitude. Yeah, that's that's precisely right. I what I find, you know, probably the most interesting aspect of your book is that not only are you writing this from the perspective of, you know, the broad left, but from a socialist perspective, and you make a pro a socialist um argument against borders when after uh, a lot there was a lot of this going around after Bernie Sanders loss that the problem with his campaign was that he was talking about open borders and people don't want that and the left should actually be for like strict borders right and this kind of like Tucker Carlson populism or something yeah I mean that whole conversation that seems to ebb and flow uh, strikes me as very silly in as much as Bernie was assuredly not talking about open borders. <laughs> yeah. <borders. laughs> yeah. But although yes. to to the Sanders campaign's credit, its 2020 immigration platform was I think it is fair to say the by far and away the most left-wing of certainly anybody running in this campaign and and possibly even ever for a democrat in so much as he embraced uh, decriminalizing border crossings and dismantling the most repressive parts of the immigration enforcement apparatus. But I do think that there is still a, a real substantive conversation that needs to happen within the growing <laughs> uh, socialist and workers movement uh, in this country about the the function of borders and the function of border mm-hmm. enforcement and how that relates to our wider project of liberation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that even with the 
kind of abolitionist movement stepping into the void that the that the Sanders campaign left um, this summer and into the fall, even still, there has not been, I think, a sufficiently robust analysis of how local police and state police and sheriff's departments fit into the larger immigration enforcement machinery to say that, you know, we want to abolish police and prisons, what that actually would mean as well for undocumented workers Mm -hmm. and why those struggles and how those struggles are linked. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Cause if we, now I think about if we defund the police, who will put the kids in cages? Because we we tend to think it's just ice for some reason. Right. Uh, certain people think that it's just ice, but no, it's actual no. local people. Well, and also, you know, it's like, you know, we, we when when sort of all the like Occupy Ice stuff was going on, you end up finding out, oh, there's a lot of like in- intermingled facilities. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a lot of people that are just, you know, in, in prison for, uh, uh, you know, immigration crimes that are just... Uh, you know, and with everybody else, I guess. Yeah. And I think also the, the Occupy Ice moment was particularly revealing insofar as many of those encampments around the country, when they were not being hassled by local PDs or, or the ICE and, and DHS agents that who's, buildings they were uh, protesting against were getting harassed were getting attacked by mm-hmm. non-uniform fascists and right. this was a moment when i think it became very clear the practical and ideological unity between these growing formations on the far right outside of the state that have sometimes a kind of hostile relationship with law enforcement but ultimately understand that they are kind of on the same side. And when in these kinds of moments, when they have a shared target in, in the left, they very much embrace that and, and make, make their allegiances known. Man, you had an interesting article. I think a uh, vice titled it. Uh, was it like uh, uh, takes you aren't allowed to have or. Uh, oh, un- unthinkable ideas. Unthinkable ideas. Yeah. And you're, I, unthinkable idea was building a global abolition mo- movement and what i like about your book is you do talk about how the, the you know the way to fight back against this nativism is you know global solidarity because mm-hmm. you actually were able to speak with uh people across the uh, world uh who were part of this global abolition movement yeah and, and to be clear it's not my idea very clever very clever to come up with everybody working together like that vice gave you credit for it though <laughs> um, yeah so vice commissioned me to work on this piece and and it was a great opportunity because something that i had been thinking a lot about over the summer was you know what we mean when we really say a world without police or prisons um and many prominent theorists of abolition and scholars of abolition will speak about the internationalist aspect of prison prison and police abolition. But especially in the U.S., the left is very bad at doing internationalism in a practical way. I mean, we can put out statements, we can, we can do tweets calling Juan Guaido a piece of shit, but like, Mm -hmm. be like to, to kind of, be like real about it 
is going to take a little bit more work. And so what I was interested in trying to do with this piece is talking to organizers, abolitionist organizers around the world involved in building abolitionist struggles in different contexts to learn about how, well, for one thing, how they see what's happening in the U.S., but ultimately how they see all of these different struggles relating to each other. Yeah, it was a pretty remarkable experience to be able to get so many different perspectives on on this question of policing and police violence and, and the role of these institutions in different contexts. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, it all just boils down to like, fuck the police like in different languages <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're talking about this book from a socialist perspective but this book is really i think aimed at a very pretty mm. broad audience it might open with a quote from rosa luxemburg but <laughs> anybody who is just like i think the average resistor would like learn a ton from but, but also even be- as somebody who you know uh uh, uh has, has read theory and stuff like that like it is always kind of nice it's 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 nice to not assume too much of people. You know what I mean? It's kind of nice to uh, have it all laid out uh, uh, in, in, in the sort of complete sense. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this is a, a complicated history um, and, and much of it was, was, was obscure to me and remains obscure to me. But what I, what do I hope people will take away with, take away from it? Um, I think that even Though Joe Biden has 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 won the presidency and is going to be our next president, these questions of the, of the relationship between capital and race and nationhood, and as they're like kind of mediated by nativist ideologies and far right political formations, are going to be, I think, really paradigmatic in the years to come, which is to say that issues of movement and migration and displacement Mm -hmm. um, as the political crises deepen, as the financial crises deepen, and especially as the climate crisis deepens, more and more people are going to be uprooted from their homes and will will not have the choice to be able to stay where where they are and are going to be internally displaced and are going to be externally displaced and many of them will come will come to the United States and in in the US and in Europe I think it's more than fair to say that like the amount of my, of 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 immigration that we've seen in the past 30 years is a fraction <laughs> of what's coming and already right. we have seen what an outsized reaction there has been to that. Right. And I, I think that this is kind of just the beginning and that, as I was saying before, it needs to be a central part of our analysis and our practice as we build our socialist movements. Another point, even just in sort of like the practical sense, is that the right, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the practical sense for the left to have a coherent uh, uh, argument on this and a coherent vision on this is that the right does have a coherent vision on this. And they have like been beating, I mean, they have like a somewhat coherent vision and they have been beating the drum for many, many years uh, and they are making it a central part. Uh, uh, It's, you know, a big part of why Trump was president. It's a big part of uh, uh, his support in general. 
you know, for the left to kind, you know, the, the left needs to have uh, uh, an answer for that because, you know, this this stuff clearly does, you know, resonate with people and is obviously going to, you know, continue to uh, snowball uh, uh, larger and larger uh, 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 as we get into this century. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, the book will be out January uh, 19th, um, Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fused the Right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you? <laughs> uh, people can, <laughs> Unfortunately, people can find me on Twitter uh, <laughs> uh, at, uh, <laughs> at underscore Grendan, G-R-E-N-D-A-N. Uh, yeah, that's probably the best place to find me. Uh, and yeah, the book is really great. Check it out. It's it's got a lot of like really great firsthand reporting. You do you like really get in like the thick of like you know you really fucking go there with all <laughs> yeah. this shit. You really like, yeah. I would like you know you know you go through, I go through the book and I'm like wow this guy really fucking like had to go and do a lot of real deal fucking reporting for this. It's not one of these like just reading a bunch of research books. Uh, uh, so you know that's good yeah. shit. Yeah, you tie so many things together and and like Jack said, like there's not a coherent vision about this, and you try to offer one, which is one of global solidarity. And a borderless world, and I don't think that is what uh, cost Bernie Sanders the election. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. That was struggle session. Have a good one. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.